So this morning, I hope that, uh, you know, as we look at a passage of Scripture, we will simply be, I'm going to say, overwhelmed with the spiritual blessing that we have in Jesus. That this faith that we have in the reality of things unseen is an incredible gift of God. There are a couple of quotes. Well, one's a quote from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis on the screen. And it just talks about people or human desire for something kind of more than what I will simply say this world and all of its stuff and its experiences can offer. This desire in the human heart for something uh, greater. And then there's this quote from Matthew 9.36 where it says, Jesus looked out on the crowds and that he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I thought he's not moved because they were in poverty. He's not moved, he says, because they were sick. He was moved because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I thought about that as sort of an indication of lacking purpose, lacking meaning, lacking direction in their life. And it really was lacking something spiritual. And we've spent the last month, maybe a bit more, in the Gospel of John. And we've looked at some very tangible miracles that Jesus did, turning water to wine. Jeremy and Kim talked about that. Uh, we talked about the miracle of turning a little bit of food into enough to feed a multitude of people. Things you would have been able to see with your eyes and taste with your mouth. We've listened in on conversations that Jesus had with people of high esteem. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus, he was talking to a man of high social standing. And we listened to a conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well who would have been a person of very low esteem. And in those conversations, Jesus talks to them about the need, I'll say, for spiritual food. For water that's not going to run dry, and for bread that is never going to run out. You know, most people who gather on Sunday morning, so I'm going to say most of you, most of us, we gather because we do believe in that which we cannot see. That we embrace the reality of spiritual things. That spiritual life is something, in fact, probably the Bible would say is far more lasting than those things that we can handle and touch. And we say we believe that. Paul described the words in the Bible as being God-breathed. That the stories, the history, the events, the miracles... All of them have at their heart a spiritual purpose. 
And that ultimately these God-breathed words that we call the Bible are meant to draw us and direct us to the person that the Bible says is the word made flesh. So those words we read as we open the Bible are quite literally meant us to draw us to the person who became flesh and lived among us. And so this, I'll call the Bible a living, breathing document, is intended to speak spiritual life into us. To teach us about God and his greatness. To teach about Jesus, his teaching and his sacrifice for us. To teach us about the church. And perhaps more specifically, the word of God is intended to speak directly to us. It's intended to speak to me. Paul said he saw all scripture as being useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And then he has this phrase, for training in righteousness. And I think about one of the ultimate purposes of the word of God, this life breathed into us, is to train us in right living. That last song award, I think, talked about the amazing love of God demanding our life, our all. For training in righteousness so the man and woman of God would be proficient, would be complete, would be some translations that we would be adequate for what? For every good work that God has called us to do. And I hope this morning that we would feel, I will say, more equipped, more joyful about the spiritual life that God has breathed into us. We live in a very physical and a very tangible world. That our time and our thoughts can so easily be preoccupied with the things that we can touch and hold, even good things, health, work, children and family, perhaps finances, food, renovations in your house, technology, all of these physical material things that we are surrounded by can very easily actually control us. And I think that is why the Bible speaks about the importance of us gathering as children of God to remind us who we are as followers of Jesus Christ and to remind us of the life that he's called us to live and to remind us of the greatness of our salvation. That song, How Great Thou Art, I mean, when that, I don't know when that was written, Warren, but that song has remained powerful for decade after decade. That the words of that song in some way capture so beautifully the greatness of our God. There's a lot of church songs we sing that we sing and then 
You know what? Two years down the road, it's like, oh yeah, we never sing that again. How great thou art speaks to the greatness of our God. Our songs need to declare the goodness of God. The Bible does not dismiss or even minimize the reality of physical and material things. But the Bible's focus is to remind us of something far greater than this world can offer. That the Bible's great narrative, the great story, the great message of the Bible is to offer, to extend to anyone willing to listen and receive spiritual healing, spiritual life, spiritual vitality. That he offers a place of inner peace and an inner rest for our very soul. That which makes us who we are. And he talks about so often, Jesus talked about a kingdom that he said, it's not like this world. And it's not of this world. And you may ask, what does any of that, Doug, have to do with John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18? And I think quite a bit. This is a passage of another amazing miracle. And while we should stand in awe of what Jesus did for this man, we need to let this miracle remind us of the miracle of being reborn spiritually. The miracle of what I will call our spiritual healing through Jesus. Like every other miracle, this uh, is a sign, I would say, and uh, Jeremy and Kim and uh, Chris, when he spoke, spoke about the fact that these miracles are meant as signposts to point us to something greater. But they also declare the power and authority of Jesus. That Jesus could calm storms. That Jesus has power over that which he has created. That Jesus could free people from very dark places. People, Jesus could heal the sick. And, and Jesus could literally raise people from the dead. How? It says by the power of his name. The power of his word. And this morning as we marvel at this physical and I'll say very visible and miraculous sign. We need to ask the question spiritually speaking what is God saying to us? I want to make just a few comments before I read the passage. Number one, this is a real event. It's not an allegory. It's not a story written to make a point, although it makes a point. This is real. This man existed. This pool beside which he was lying existed. And if you want to do some Searching, you can search about the Pool of Bethesda, and there's some amazing archaeological information you will find about the reality of this pool that they have, I'll say, uncovered. And this man who could barely move, 
stood up, picked up his mat, and walked. Number two, Jesus knows that it is the Sabbath. And that Jesus knows that as he performs this miracle and as this event unfolds, that a conflict is going to ensue. And I would go so far as to say that Jesus welcomed that confrontation and that Jesus even initiated that confrontation. And number three, we need to remind ourselves that there is actually a crowd of desperately sick people around this pool. Not just one man. This man did not recognize Jesus as Jesus. Didn't know him. That Jesus literally sought him out. This man makes no request of Jesus. He doesn't call out to him. He doesn't try to touch his garment. He exhibits no, what we might say, faith. He's just there. And yet Jesus knew the desperation of his story. The fact that nothing about this man was hidden from Jesus. In the same way that nothing about the woman at the well was hidden from Jesus. And I think we need to remind ourselves that nothing about ourselves, nothing, is hidden from Jesus. And yet he has poured out his grace and his mercy over us. I want to read the, I think it's probably on the screen. After this there was a festival and, of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethesda, which has five alcoves. In these lay many invalids. I think some of your translations might say hundreds. Blind, lame, paralyzed. And one man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. There's the physical miracle that anybody standing around would have seen. And then it says, now that day was a Sabbath. 
And so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take it up and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is still working, and I also am still working. I love that. Neither slumbers nor sleeps. The work of God, power of the gospel, the word of spiritual healing never ceases. Jesus answered them, sorry, well, I'll repeat that. My father is still working, and I also am still working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. And although we're not looking at verses 19 to the end of the chapter, really this whole event, I would say, is in a way about verses 19 to the very end of the chapter where Jesus speaks about being one with the Father. But we're not going to look at that this morning. I really want to take most of the time to talk about this man and this, I'll say, physical healing that I believe is meant to focus our attention on spiritual healing. And one of the things that jumps out at me when I read this story is that when this man meets people that he knows, their response is not, wow, look at you. Their response is, how come you're carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Uh, it, it is such an incredible contrast to the law, to the rules, to the regulations that you can wrap around religion. That you can be so blind to something and even to someone, to Jesus, who has actually allowed this man who was barely able to move on his own to walk on his own, and they're concerned about the mat. We do not witness a response that is rich in mercy, love, or joy. We witness a man taken to task because he's carrying his mat. I think the point of this conversation, and it happens throughout the Gospels, this conflict between Jesus and the religious 
um, I'll just call it the religious establishment of that day. That there is nothing life-giving or attractive about a form of religion that fixates on the law. That fixates on rules and do this and do that. Instead, we are to be drawn to the one who fulfilled the law. That's what Jesus said. He fulfilled it on our behalf so that we could be free of it. And I love this man's response when he's taken to task. He simply says, well, the man who healed me told me to pick up my mat. And that's what I'm doing. That Jesus has not called us into a new form of religion. He has called us to spiritual freedom. And to those of us who believe, he says, now pick up your mat. Pick up this life that I have given you and this life that I've breathed in you and walk in freedom. And I will say walk in freedom whether you have been blessed with good health or whether you have physical limitations and pain and struggle. Walk spiritually free. I believe this story is recorded because spiritually speaking, we are this man. So if you ever revisit this story, and when I think about it now, I need to understand that spiritually speaking, I am this man. That we are not spectators or onlookers just watching an amazing healing that Jesus did, which he did. Spiritually, we are this man. The inability of this man to physically get into the pool on his own reflects our own spiritual inability to find spiritual healing apart from Jesus. And the beauty of it is that Jesus offers that spiritual healing to anyone, everyone. The last part here, I want to kind of focus on three thoughts. And one is shame and disgrace. One is mercy and grace. And the last one is what I will call the great commission that we've been given. Sometimes this passage is highlighted for its compassion. And there's no question that Jesus showed compassion for this man. Even though this man didn't call out, didn't exhibit faith, Jesus shows compassion for him. But I need to ask the question, what about every other person lying by that pool? Wouldn't a truly compassionate Jesus have spoken a word of healing into every one of them? And I think that's a fair question.
Which is why we need to understand this event, this miracle, as addressing the human need for spiritual healing and wholeness. Our biggest challenge, spiritually speaking, is our sin and not our health. You might call it this moral and ethical struggle, the moral and ethical imperfections that we all have. Those things that create in us a sense of shame and disgrace. Those things that we try to hide about ourselves. Those things that we may do in private. Those thoughts and actions that we know to be less than admirable. Shame and disgrace. Every one of us knows that. In fact, I would say those things give evidence of our real spiritual illness. Shame and disgrace are sometimes characterized as destructive feelings or destructive emotions that we should kind of try to shove aside. But even secular psychologists admit that shame and disgrace speak to us about something greater, something better. I will say something better to aspire to. And I think the Christian faith would attest to this. That in our shame and in our disgrace, in our, you might say, moral and ethical weakness that we all have in common, Jesus walks by and says to us the same thing he said to this man, would you like to be well? I think it's such a powerful invitation. If Jesus had asked, you know, any of you who want to be made physically whole, there would have been a lineup of people. And there are, would still be a lineup of people today. But when Jesus says, do you want to be made spiritually whole? Do you want to follow me? Somehow that line dwindles. Bethesda is a word that can be interpreted Apparently, can be used in two different ways. It can be interpreted as house or place of shame and disgrace. And those desperate people gathered around that pool would have identified with that meaning. In fact, the religious leaders may have actually said to them, you are actually sick because of your sin. That's why you're there. You might say you are receiving spiritual karma. But the other meaning for Bethesda is actually house or place of mercy and grace. And I think there is something so spiritually profound and beautiful about this. 
that over our shame and disgrace, that over our sins, over our imperfections that we all have, Jesus has poured out his mercy and his grace. And so while we are humbled by our weakness, and I will say I think we need to be humbled by our weakness every day. We are not defined by our weaknesses, nor are we meant to be controlled by them. That Jesus has lifted us up, placed our feet upon a rock which is higher than we are. That Jesus has poured his righteousness over us. So pick up your mat. Walk humbly and walk free as a child of God. Jesus took the initiative to find this man at the pool. And he takes the initiative to find him later in the temple. And he does not say to him, by the way, from now on, make sure you don't carry your mat on Sunday. He rejoices in the fact that he is physically whole. He says, I see you have been made well. And then he challenges him. And I want us to think about this in terms of the great commission we have been given as children of God. When Paul says that scripture is good for teaching and for reproof and for correction, and he ends by saying, it is good for training in righteousness so that we can be equipped for every good work that God puts in front of us. And Jesus challenges him with this phrase, stop sinning or something worse could happen to you. I have to admit that when I read that, I wished Jesus had said something slightly different. I need to admit that, and I would love to have been able to ask Jesus exactly what did you mean by that. Is Jesus linking all sickness to sin? And I think we need to be so cautious when we look at phrases like that. I think it's true that sickness reflects the brokenness of the human condition. And, and so you might say, yes, in some sense, that brokenness is sort of an example of our weaknesses, our sin, our moral and ethical struggles. And so, yes, maybe all sickness in some way is related to sin, but that's sort of a broad context. I also think it's safe to say that unhealthy lifestyle choices, of which there are many, may also very well result in sickness. And some of those choices the Bible may see as sinful. And say so you're sick because you have made some very unhealthy life choices that the Bible would speak against. But most of the time, sickness is simply 
part of life. And if our response to somebody who is ill, whether physically or mentally, is to blame their sickness on their sin, we have simply put on the same judgmental clothes the Pharisees wore. And that counsel is not helpful. That counsel is not loving. That counsel is not compassionate. And in most cases, that counsel is not true. You can read the story of Job. Lots of people who said to him, well, it's because of this. In a sense, it is the same as saying, I have good health because I am more godly than you. And that is the ugliness of spiritual pride. And I would say there's nothing more offensive to the world and within the church than spiritual pride. I sometimes wonder why God has blessed me with good health. Because he has. And I will say it in spite of my sin. When Jesus challenges this man to stop sinning, he's calling him, I'm going to say, to change. That picking up your mat and walking demands more than a physical response. He is saying to this man, you need to walk differently. It needs to affect your heart, and it needs to affect how you now walk. And I think it's a great theme of the Bible that those of us who identify as followers of Jesus are called to walk differently. And in the Old Testament, and it's a passage I, I quote, and maybe too often, when you look at the struggles that the nation had, this nation who was supposed to be a nation of God's people. And their struggle with kind of following after what they saw all around them in other nations. And in Micah, Micah says, God has told you what he wants from you. He says, do justly. In your walk, do Justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I think that's our great commission. We sometimes call the great commission that, that um, challenge that Jesus spoke, but he spoke that challenge to a group of disciples. And I think he still speaks of that similar challenge into people for whom God has placed in their heart this need to proclaim the gospel. But God has called all of us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. To set our minds, he says, on things above. Think about things that are pure, that are honorable, that are right, that are uh, beyond reproof. Things that are worthy of praise. Set your heart and mind on those kind of things.
Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus would say, love even those who seek to do you harm. Why? Because over our shame and our disgrace, Jesus has poured out his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. He has poured over us his righteousness. In fact, one place that I forget where this is in the Bible, it says he has lavished it upon us. There's not a single day when I wake up that I can choose to substitute humility for self-righteousness. Not a single day. I need to remind myself every day that I am this man apart from Jesus. And that Jesus has breathed spiritual life into these very weak human bones and flesh. In order that we might do those things that God has called us to do. And I think sometimes the people who grab a hold of this truth stronger than anybody else are those who actually have physical weaknesses. Who quite literally have thrown their arms wide open to the spiritual life that God has breathed into them. I want to close in prayer and... Uh, Warren, I, I want to make a request of you, and I don't know this probably messes up in all of your plans, but the third song that you did in your set of three, if you could do that one again, I would love that. So come on up. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the power and the truth and the life that can be found in your word. Father, as I think about this man by the pool that you sought out, I need to know and thank you, Jesus, so that was me. And Father, I humbly confess sin and disgrace. I understand that, God. But I thank you that over all of that, you have showered me, you have showered us, with mercy and grace. Father, help us to walk in that freedom this week and do those things that you'd have us to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.